Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, the Federal Reserve's Economic Projections for December and what it means for markets. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. The Fed now sees growth slowing, unemployment rising faster, and inflation running slightly higher through the remainder of 2023 than their projections in September. This forces the Fed to make a choice. Do they focus on supporting the weakening economic outlook or continue to prioritize the fight against higher but slowing falling inflation? These choices can lead to different outcomes for the economy and therefore investing. A copy of the Federal Reserve's projections for December can be found by going to the www.federalreserve.gov and clicking on Monetary Policy tab and hitting the link for the projection materials. As expected, the Federal Reserve Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, raised the federal funds target rate a half a percent to a range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent at their December meeting. Here's what the policy setting Federal Open Market Committee said. Recent indicators point to modest growth in spending and production. Job gains have been robust in recent months, and the unemployment rate has remained low. Inflation remains elevated, reflecting supply and demand imbalances related to the pandemic, higher food and energy prices, and broader price pressures. Russia's war against Ukraine is causing tremendous human and economic hardship. The war and related events are contributing to upward pressure on inflation and are weighing on global economic activity. The committee is highly attentive to inflation risk. The committee seeks to achieve maximum employment and inflation at the rate of 2% over the long run. In support of these goals, the committee decided to raise the target range for the federal funds rate to 4.25% to 4.5%. The committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. In determining the pace of future increases in the target range, the committee will consider the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the last of which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. In addition, the committee will continue reducing its holding of Treasury securities and agency debt and agency mortgage-backed securities, as described in the plans for reducing the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet that were issued and made. The committee is strongly committed to returning inflation to its 2% objective. The key is the Fed continued the forward guidance message started in November statement to emphasize the amount of tightening to date and the lag with which monetary policy impacts the economy. Long lags between monetary policy action and effects plus heightened recession risk and uncertainty around the inflation outlook all appear to justify a more measured pace of tightening in the months ahead, following what has been an even more rapid tightening in financial conditions than we saw in 2008. This means that the first up was at this December meeting with a shift in the pace of rate hikes to a slower 50 basis points to potentially 25 basis points before leading to a pause in rate hikes. The pause in rate hikes will not come until probably sometime in early to mid-2023 if everything works to plan. There are three main reasons why it would make sense for the Fed as well as other major central banks to pause interest rate hikes once the policy rate has reached a meaningfully restrictive level. First, monetary policy works through lags. 
This means that central banks shouldn't shift policy based on what inflation is doing today, but rather what they forecast inflation to do one to two years from now. Their median 2022 core PCA inflation forecast was revised higher to 4.8% for 2022, 3.5% for 2023, 2.5% for 2024, and 2.1% for 2025. Longer-run projections for core PC inflation are not collected. The Fed's new forecast still implies an expectation that the currently elevated pace of inflation will fall back toward the central bank's longer-term 2% target over time, although it would stay higher and take longer than they originally expected due to the continued supply chain constraints, the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and continued sticky inflation in areas such as services, inflation, ex-shelter. Looking at measures of inflation, we see that they are all currently above the Fed's target of an average of an inflation rate of 2%. The core PC, the Fed's preferred measure, increased 4.6% year-over-year for November, with the December reading being released in January of 2023. The Consumer Price Index CPI increased 7.1% year-over-year in November, while the core Consumer Price Index, which is less food and energy, increased 6% year-over-year in November. Trim mean PC, which is calculated by the Dallas Fed, is an alternative measure of inflation that the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, has referenced in the past. It increased 4.6% year-over-year through November, with the December update coming out in January. The underlying inflation gauge from the New York Fed is currently estimated at a 4.1% through November, while the Atlanta Fed core sticky CPI is up 5.4% on an annualized basis through November. The Fed is tightening monetary policy to try and slow the demand side of inflation, since they don't have any control over the supply side. That has some impact on the demand side of good inflation, which spiked during the pandemic, and has started to come down as the economy has been reopening. So how much of an uptick in inflation is caused by the supply side of the equation? According to recent research from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, shows that inflation in the U.S. would have been 6% instead of 9% at the end of 2021 without supply bottlenecks. They go on to state that the fiscal stimulus and other aggregate demand factors would not have driven inflation this high without the pandemic-related supply constraints. In the absence of any new energy or other shock, it is therefore possible that the ongoing easing of the supply bottlenecks will cause a substantial drop in inflation in the near term. It's going to take the supply side to help inflation increase more quickly. There is some evidence that supply chain constraints are starting to loosen. According to the Global Supply Chain Pressure Index from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, it shows that global supply chain pressures have been decreasing since December of 2021. Global supply chain pressures increased moderately in November, continuing a trend seen in October, albeit at a lower rate. The Global Supply Chain Pressure Index year-to-date movements suggest that although global supply chain pressures have been decreasing, they still remain at higher than normal levels. The CPI year-over-year change versus the three-month moving average of the Ned Davis Global Supply Chain Pressure Index advanced six months shows that inflation should continue to come down in 2023, closer to 2.5%. Currently, longer-term inflation expectations are still relatively anchored near the Fed's target of 2%. According to the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, year-ahead inflation expectations improved considerably but remained elevated, falling from 4.9% in November to 4.4% in December, the lowest reading in 18 months but still well above two years ago. At 2.9%, long-run inflation expectations have stayed within the narrow, albeit elevated 29 to 3.1% range for 16 of the last 17 months. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York survey of consumer expectations for November show median 1, 3, and 5-year-ahead inflation expectations decreased to 5.2%, 3%, and 2.3% respectfully. 
As for market-based inflation expectations, the five-year break-even inflation rate and 10-year break-even inflation rate as of December 16th were 2.14% and 2.13%. The latest value implies what market participants expect inflation to be in the next five and 10 years on average. The five-year five-year forward inflation expected rate as of 2016 is 2.12%. This is a measure of expected inflation on average over the five-year period that begins five years from today. Market-based inflation expectations are above 2% and slightly inverted when looking at the 5-year and 10-year inflation break-evens. However, these expectations currently are very well anchored around 2%. Finally, let's look at the inflation expectations of professional economic forecasters and economists. The survey of professional forecasters surveys professional economic forecasts on their outlook for two major governmental measures of inflation, the CPI and the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, of PCE, which is the Federal Reserve's preferred measure. Their estimates are updated quarterly with their next estimate coming out in February. For their November release, their estimate for the 10-year average annual rate of inflation was 2.58%. Finally, let's look at the estimate from the Federal Reserve Economist. The Index of Common Inflation Expectation, or the CIE, which combines 21 indicators of inflation expectations, including readings from consumer surveys, markets, and an economic forecast. The Index of Common Inflation Expectations, based on the Survey of Professional Forecasters 10-Year-Ahead PCE Inflation Expectation as of October 21st was 2.3%, while the Index of Common Inflation Expectations, based on the University of Michigan Inflation Expectations of the next 5-10 to 10 years, came in at 3.22%. The next update will come in January of 2023. So when looking at the inflation expectation of professional forecasters and economists of the Federal Reserve, their expectations for inflation tend to be lower than that of consumers and market-based expectations. Overall, inflation expectations are still well-grounded and have not become unanchored, which the Fed is trying to do because that will help them with inflation coming down. How reliable are inflation expectations as a reliable guide to actual inflation? A recent paper by the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland shows that the predictive relationship between a range of inflation expectation measures and future inflation is not good, especially for consumer inflation expectations. The Cleveland Fed paper analyzes inflation expectations from four main groups, including households, professional economists, businesses, and financial markets. It finds that in some cases over the past decade, the correlation between expected and actual inflation has been negative, suggesting a much more limited ability of the expectation measures predict one year ahead. Professional economists have consistently had the best track record going back to the 80s and consumers the worst, while markets have been a rather poor predictor of overall inflation since 2011. Consumer expectations of inflation tend to always be higher than that of professional forecasters and economists and market-based inflation expectations. So inflation is slowly moving lower when looking at the CPI and their preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE. Inflation expectations are well-grounded and have not come anchored from a longer-term inflation rate of 2%. Inflation tends to be a lagging indicator when it comes to real GDP and tends to peak historically in the middle of a recession. Leading indicators of inflation suggest that it should continue cooling off in the coming months as well. Whether you look at the Mannheim used car price index as one proxy for good inflation and the rollover and growth of the Zillow rental index for shelter inflation, inflation does look to be coming down. So why does the Fed continue to tighten policy by raising rates and rolling off the balance sheet if real-time indicators of inflation are coming down? The answer comes from Chair Powell's press conference after the December Fed meeting. This is what he stated at the press conference. 
You can break down inflation into three sorts of buckets. The first is goods inflation, and we see now, as we've been expecting really for a year and a half, that supply conditions will get better, and ultimately supply chains get fixed, and demand settles down a little bit and maybe goes back to services a little bit. And we start to see goods inflation coming down. We're now starting to see that in this report and the last one. Then you go to housing services. We know the story there is that housing services inflation has been very, very high and will continue to go up as rents expire and have to be renewed. They're going to be renewed into a market where rates are higher than they were when the original leases were signed. But we see that the new leases that are rates for the new leases are coming down. So once we work our way through that backlog, that inflation will come down sometime next year. The third piece, which is something like 55% of the index of PCE core inflation index, is non-housing related core services. And that's really a function of the labor market largely at the biggest cost by far in the sector is labor. And we do see a very, very strong labor market, one where we haven't seen much softening, where job growth is very high, where wages are very high. Vacancies are quite elevated. Really, there's an imbalance in the labor market between supply and demand. So that part of it, which is the biggest part, is likely to take a substantial period to get down. The other, you know, the good inflation has turned pretty quickly now after not turning it off for a year and a half. Now it seems to be turning, but there's an expectation, really, that the service inflation will not move down so quickly. So the Fed is worried about the non-housing-related core services inflation that is impacted by higher wages due to a tight labor market that will take longer to come down. The question that becomes is if the labor market is as tight as the Fed thinks it is, and if not, is wage growth already beginning to slow? If we look at the November job report, the seemingly robust headline number of 263,000 jobs comes from the Establishment Survey of Businesses, while the unemployment rate comes from the Household Survey. But the Household Survey also has a measure of employment, and that fell by 138,000. In fact, the Household Survey has been flat since March of this year, with essentially no jobs added over that time. Over the last eight months, there has been an unprecedentedly large divergence between the two surveys of 2.7 million jobs. One reason for this is that the establishment survey allows for double counting, and the household survey does not. Over the last year, approximately one-fifth the additional non-farm payrolls have been double counting, not additional people employed. Other research shows that the job growth indicated by the establishment survey could be overstated. According to the most recent early benchmark revisions of state payroll employment from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, estimates that the employment change from March through June of 2022 were significantly different in 33 states and a district in Columbia compared with the current state estimates from the Bureau of Labor Statistics Current Employment Statistics. Early benchmark estimates indicated higher changes in four states, lower changes in 29 states and the District of Columbia, and lesser changes in the remaining 17 states. They go on to state that their estimates incorporate more comprehensive, accurate job estimates released by the BLS as part of the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages program to augment the sample data from the BLS's CES that are issued monthly. Based on their data, payroll jobs in the nation remained essentially flat from March through June of 2022 after adjusting for the QCEW data with 10,500 net new jobs that were added during the period, rather than the 1,121,500 jobs estimated by the sum of the states and the U.S. CES estimates of net growth of 1,047,000 jobs for the same period. This means that job numbers could be revised lower to show that the labor market was not as healthy as the Fed is thinking it is. BLS revises its payroll survey data in each of the two months following initial release. 
This would not be the first time that the Fed has underestimated the weakness in the labor market, as they have tended to underestimate the unemployment rate in recessions versus the actual unemployment rate that occurred during the recession. According to research by Ned Davis Research, payrolls growth normally slows in the second year after tightening starts, especially in a fast tightening cycle like we've seen this year. The average gain in non-farm payrolls during the second year of a tightening cycle is 0.9%. If the labor market, which is again a lagging indicator, is weakening more than the Fed believes, this would also mean that wage growth should start to come down as well. According to data from the Indeed Wage Tracker, it shows that U.S. posted wages grew in November at a robust 6.5% year-over-year pace, up from 3.1% in November of 2019. But year-over-year posted wage growth has declined substantially in recent months, falling from a peak of 9% in March of 2022, with wage growth in 82% of the job sectors lower in November than six months earlier. So the risk of the Fed over-tightening due to inflation in the labor market being a lagging indicator is higher and won't be known until it's too late if it happens because the monetary policy tightening the Fed is engaged in works with a lag through the economy. Speaking of continued monetary policy tightening by the Fed, let's look at the Fed Fund's projections for December. With above-target inflation appearing to be more persistent than many observers initially believe, members on the committee appear to view more tightening as warranted. The median projection for the Fed funds rate is 4.4% for 2022, 5.1% for 2023, 4.1% for 2024, and 3.1% for 2025. That was an increase of 0.5, 0.5, and 0.2% for 23, 24, and 25, respectively, from their September projections. Their long-run median projection for the Fed funds rate is 2.5%. This median projection of the longer-run Fed funds rate is essentially an estimate of their neutral rate. The neutral rate is the federal funds rate that neither stimulates nor restrains economic growth. This shows that the Fed, based on their projections, will look to tighten policy well above the neutral rate by the end of 2022 and to keep the Fed funds rate above the neutral rate through 2025, even with the Fed's median forecast of interest rate cuts in 2024. This has been the fastest rate hike cycle the past four decades with a lot of tightening has already taken place and likely still needs to work its way through the economy. With the Fed raising the Fed funds rate to 4.375% in the middle of their current range of 4.25%, this would be on top of the tightening that has already taken place through the completion of the tapering of their asset purchases in March. According to the Wuxi Shadow Fed Funds Rate from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, the Fed has tightened policy 2.06% because of completion of tapering in March due to the Shadow Fed Funds Rate moving from a negative 1.85% in November to 0.21% as of March 9th of this year. This would be like tightening policy between the completion of tapering and raising rates of around 6.5%. This tightening does not include the Fed starting to roll off their balance sheet that began in June. After a roughly three-month ramp-up, the Fed plan would allow up to $95 billion in securities to mature every month without being replaced, made up of $60 billion in treasuries and $35 billion in mortgage bonds to mature every month. According to Edmund Crawley, the Federal Reserve Board and co-author of a recent Fed paper, a $2.5 trillion reduction in the Fed balance sheet over the next few years is roughly equivalent to a half percentage point increase in the Fed funds rate. According to Deutsche Bank, the impact of a $1.9 trillion in balance sheet reductions might be like three and a half rate hikes. So if this calculation is correct based on the current schedule for balance sheet roll-off that the Fed has in place, it would be like an additional 1% of tightening this year. Adding this to the approximate 6.5% of tightening from the completion of tapering of their asset purchases and raising rates, based on their projections, leaves us with a potential tightening of around 7.5%. 
David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research stated in a recent client note that the $95 billion monthly balance sheet roll-off would be the same as a 170 basis point increase in interest rates this year. If this more bearish impact on the balance sheet roll-off is correct, that would bring potential tightening to about 8.2% this year. A recent paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco titled Monetary Policy Stance is Tighter Than the Federal Funds Rate also discusses this actual monetary policy tightening in addition to the rate hikes. According to the paper, the Federal Reserve's use of forward guidance and balance sheet policy means that the monetary policy consists of more than changing the federal funds rate target. A proxy Fed funds measure shows that since late 2021, monetary policy has been substantially tighter than the federal funds rate indicates. Tightening financial conditions are like what would be expected if the Fed funds rate had exceeded 5.25% by September of 2022. Fed funds future shows the Fed moving up rates to a range of four to three quarters to five percent at the peak in March of 2023, before cutting rates starting in November and ending 2023 in a range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent, which is the current range for the Fed funds rate. And it has not just been the Federal Reserve that has been increasing interest rate. Global central banks have been hiking rates at a fast and furious pace in 2022. There have been over 250 rate hikes globally this year. In terms of real GDP, the Fed's median projection for 2022 is 0.5%, for 2023 is 0.5%, 2024 1.6%, and 1.8% for 2025. While the Fed did not project a recession in the real U.S. GDP over its forecast horizon, the 0.5% median projection for 2022 and 2023 is telling since most central banks don't forecast a recession in their projections. The long-run median projection they see is 1.8%. Longer-run projections represent each participant's assessment of the rate to which each variable would be expected to converge under appropriate monetary policy and in the absence of further shock to the economy. That long-run median estimate of 1.8% is not much different than what the economy is growing at before the pandemic. With the amount of unproductive debt to GDP, an aging demographic, decreases in the number of workers due to lower birth rates, less immigration, and the impact of long COVID, as well as no consistent pickup in productivity, this will lead to slower economic growth going forward. To see economic growth pick up, we would need to see an increase in workers and productivity, which equals a growth in GDP. As of the end of the second quarter of 2022, debt-to-GDP for the U.S. was at 120.35%. 2008 and 2009, Carmen Reinhart and Ken Rogoff published research that indicated from an extensive quantitative analysis of highly indebted economies that their economic growth was significantly diminished once they became highly over-indebted. A study by World Bank found that countries whose debt-to-GDP ratios exceeded 77% for prolonged periods experienced significant slowdown in economic growth. Why is the labor force growth slowing? First, you need to start with the aging demographics of the U.S. The 328 million strong U.S. population is rapidly aging. The U.S. Census Bureau estimates that by 2034, adults aged 65 and up will outnumber children under 18 for the first time in this country's history. Similarly, the Urban Institute forecasts that by 2040, 20% of the U.S. population will be aged 65 or older, up from 12% in 2000, and that the number of people aged 85 and up, the age group associated with the highest medical expenses, will almost quadruple, increasing pressure on an already constrained social insurance system. 
after a historically low rate of change of just 0.12% between 2020 and 2021, the U.S. resident population increased by 0.4% or 1,256,003 people in 2022, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's Vintage 2022 National and State Population Estimate. According to the Census Bureau, net international migration, the number of people moving in and out of the country, added just over a million people between 2021 and 2022 and was the primary driver of growth. This represents 168.8% growth over 2021, an indication that migration patterns are returning to pre-pandemic levels. Positive natural changes, birth minus deaths, increased the population by 245,000. However, the continued slowdown in population growth is a result of three forces, rising mortality, declining fertility, and falling net international migration. Life expectancy in the U.S. fell again last year to the lowest level since 1996 after COVID-19 and opioid overdoses drove up the number of deaths, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. They go on to state that the death rate for the U.S. population increased by 5%, cutting life expectancy at birth to 76.4 years in 2021 from 77 years in 2020. Another issue with labor force is a recent impact from those who have long-term COVID effects. According to a new Brookings Institution report, between 2 million and 4 million Americans aren't working due to their long-term effects of COVID-19. The dynamics is not just happening in the U.S. In May, a speech by a former Bank of England committee member attributed a 1.3% drop in the labor force participation to long-term COVID. The National Center for Health Statistics announced recently that the 1% rise in U.S. births in 2021 was the first increase in births since 2014. But the agency added a caveat noting that the U.S. birth rate fell to a record low in 2020, the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. U.S. total fertility rate rose to 1,663.5 births per thousand women, the first increase since 2014, the NCHS announced in May. But that is far below the 2,100 births per 1,000 women that each generation needs to exactly replace itself. The rate has generally been below replacement since 1971 and consistently been below replacement since 2007. Immigration could be used to help solve the labor force growth problems going forward as well as help to alleviate the labor supply shortage currently. According to the latest data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, there were 10.3 million job openings at the end of October. In the construction industry, there were an estimated 371,000 job openings, yet there were just 326,000 unemployed in the same industry. In other words, there is a shortage of almost 45,000 workers. In retail trade, the gap is even wider. With 879,000 job openings and 757,000 unemployed, there is a labor supply deficit of 122,000 people. If that's still not surprising enough, the number of unemployed people in the accommodation and food service industry is 936,000, while the number of job openings total 1,374,000. Even if every worker in the industry were employed, there would still be 438,000 job openings. Immigration can fill these labor gaps in the American economy, especially in occupations like the one we just documented. According to Tara Watson of Williams College, the foreign-born tend to participate in the labor force at a higher rate than do native-born Americans. She goes on to state that immigrant inventors represented 23% of all granted patents, and these patents are of higher economic value on average than those granted to U.S.-born inventors. First-generation immigrants created about a quarter of all new firms in the United States, and 45% of the Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or their children. 
If labor force does not grow, then productivity growth will have to do a lot of the heavy lifting for the economic growth to have a chance of growing at or slightly above pre-pandemic trends of around 2%. According to data from the CBO in May of 2022, they see the annual labor force productivity from 2022 through 2032 at an average of 1.5%, which is lower than the average from 1950 to 2021 of 1.7%. Non-farm business sector labor productivity decreased 1.3% from the same quarter a year ago. It has now declined for three straight quarters on an annual basis. So the economy is slowing currently based on tighter monetary and fiscal policy as well as slowing growth in workers and declining productivity. The question is, will slowing economic growth lead to a recession? The second reason for central banks to slow the pace and to eventually pause tightening is the recession risk is elevated. The U.S. economy entered a technical recession in the first and second quarters of this year with negative GDP. Although the third quarter GDP was positive at 3.2%, what many economists would call the core GDP was only up 1.1%. Some economists prefer to look at the final sales to domestic purchasers, a subset of GDP that doesn't include the impact of trade inventories and government spending, so it does a better job of measuring the activity of the U.S. private sector. As of November 30th, over 80% of every possible yield curve are inverted. Historically, when the percentage of yield curves that are inverted get over 50%, the chances of a recession are much higher. BCA research found that the gap between the 2- and 10-year yields has averted before some of the past eight recessions with no false signals. The 10-year 3-month Treasury yield curve, which is a preferred yield curve of the Fed, has inverted, which has preceded the last eight recessions in the U.S. A 2018 Federal Reserve study found that the lead time between a yield curve inverting and a recession starting ranged from 6 to 24 months. Currently, yield curve recession probability models from the Cleveland Fed and New York Fed are starting to show a more elevated probability of a recession in the next year. The Cleveland Fed recession indicator shows a 53.79% probability of a recession in the next year through December. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, the rule of thumb is that an inverted yield curve indicates a recession in about a year, and yield curve inversions have preceded each of the last eight recessions. One of the recessions predicted by the yield curve was the most recent one. The yield curve inverted in May of 2019, almost a year before the most recent recession starting in March of 2020. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York recession indicator is currently showing a 38.05% probability of recession in the next year through November. Their December reading will come out during the first two weeks of January and should be similar to the levels of the Cleveland Fed recession indicator. Historically, once the probability is at 40% or higher for either of these models, the economy is in or approaching a recession. Fed tightening cycles tend to lead to recession. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research pointed out that since 1950, there have been 14 cycles where the Fed's tightened interest rates and 11 of them ended in recession. The three times where rate hikes did not lead to recession were due to the Fed stopping short of inverting the yield curve. Recessions have generally come after the Fed has finished hiking rates in a tightening cycle, not while they're in the process of raising rates. History show that the Fed generally stops hiking as soon as the 210 yield curve spread inverts for longer than a month. However, with inflation running at higher levels, the Fed is not looking to stop hiking anytime soon, but could continue to slow the pace of rate hikes going forward. There's been a lot of talk that yield curve inversions do not work as well anymore in predicted qualities of highlighting the risk of recession. Part of the reason is that recessions don't occur immediately after the yield curve inversion. Investors need to remember that the National Bureau of Economic Research, the MBER, is the official recession dating arbiter. They wait for data revisions by the Bureau of Economic Analysis before announcing a recession's official start. Therefore, the NBER is always 6 to 12 months late dating the recession. 
Also, they will say that the Fed is manipulating the yield curve with all the expansion of their balance sheet due to the COVID pandemic. Look at August of 2019's inversion. A recession happened only six months later. The bond market sniffed out that there was something very wrong economically. All that was required to push the economy into a recession was an unexpected triggering event. That event turned out to be the pandemic. And if it was not the pandemic, it certainly would have been something else. If you wait for the official announcement by the NBER to confirm a recession, it will be too late. The NBER announcement of a recession is a lagging indicator of a recession due to them announcing it well after the recession has started. The yield curve inverting is a forward-looking indicator that tends to invert before the onset of a recession. Going back to 1947, we've never seen a two-quarter decline in real GDP of this magnitude as we had in the first and second quarter of this year without the U.S. economy being in an official recession called by the NBER. The last 10 times the U.S. real GDP had two or more consecutive quarters of negative growth, the economy was in a recession. The last exception to this was back in 1947. In June, sentiment hit the lowest level on record since the University of Michigan began its survey in the late 70s, meaning that the country collectively felt worse now, according to the data, than it did through the record high inflation of the 80s when the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. In the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, during the depths of the financial crisis and recession from 07 through 09, when the country shut down due to COVID in 2020, sending the unemployment rate soaring to nearly 15%. Consumer sentiment has begun to slowly pick up from the record lows with gas prices starting to come down, but the readings are still very negative. Negative consumer sentiment, along with the inverted yield curves and two quarters of negative growth, makes it feel like the economy is in an official recession or approaching one and not just in a technical recession. New York Fed's DSGE model forecast for December 2022 sees a better than 50% likelihood of a recession in the next couple years. Output growth is projected to be higher for 2022, largely because quarter three growth was higher, but only slightly different from previous projections thereafter. The model still sees a recession over the next few quarters as likely. However, compared to June and September, the risk of a not-so-soft landing has diminished considerably. The probability of a four-quarter GDP growth dipping below negative 1%, as occurred during the 1990s recession before the end of 2023, has fallen from 70% September to 50%. The conference board measure of CEO confidence in collaboration with the Business Council stands at 32 to start the fourth quarter of 2022, down from 34 in the third quarter. The measure fell deeper into negative territory to lows not seen since the deaths of the Great Recession. The recent survey asked CEOs described the economic conditions they are preparing to face over the next 12 to 18 months. An overwhelming majority, 98%, said they were preparing for a U.S. recession. Moreover, 99% of CEOs said they were preparing for an EU recession. The Ned Davis Research Economic Timing Model is currently calling for a mild recession. According to Ned Davis, with one exception in 1951, negative readings of this model have always been associated with a recession, raising the risk that the economy is indeed heading toward one, if not in one already. It's not just the U.S. that is at risk of a recession. The risk of recession globally has been increasing as well. According to Ned Davis Research, their global recession probability model is at 97. When their model is above 70, a global recession occurs on average 84.24% of the time. Many economists and analysts believe that the probability of an official recession caused by the NBER is currently lower due to the strength of the labor market and hirings. However, the labor market tends to be a lagging indicator. 
For those that don't believe that labor is a lagging indicator and that an official recession can occur with job growth during the recession that occurred from November of 73 through March of 1975, job growth happened during the first eight months of that recession. A simple look at the unemployment rate shows that the unemployment rate has always been low at the onset of official recessions and always high and typically still rising at the end of the official recession. As we look at their unemployment rate projection for December, we see their projection for 2022 at 3.7%, 2023 at 4.6%, 2024 at 4.6%, and 4.5% in 2025. The long-run median projections they see at 4%. The unemployment projections increased from the September projections of 3.8% in 22, 4.4% in 23, and 24, and 4.3% in 25. The long-run median projection of 4% is close to the Federal Reserve estimate of the natural rate of unemployment, which is around 4.25%. Natural rate of unemployment represents the lowest unemployment rate where inflation is stable, or the unemployment rate that exists with non-accelerating inflation. The jobless rate came in at 3.7% in November, so the most recent reading of unemployment rate is below the natural rate of unemployment. This would be another sign of a tighter job market. The Fed now projects a 0.9% increase in the unemployment rate in 2023. This has not previously occurred outside of a recession. Since 1950, without exception, any significant worsening of unemployment has happened after a recession has been declared never before. Therefore, the unemployment rate has historically been considered a lagging indicator. The lag between labor markets reacting clearly to economic change and the tallying of labor statistics is so great that the U.S. is often already in a recession by the time the unemployment rate finishes improving. Recessions have quickly followed every single major low in unemployment since 1950. In fact, the average time between the maximum low in unemployment and the next declaration of recession is 3.8 months. The maximum is 10 months, less than a year. Three times since 1950, 1957, 1973, and 1990, a low in unemployment has been followed by a recession and an explosion in unemployment in less than one month. Another way to state that this is the best harbinger of coming recession is when the BLS starts publishing numbers that suggest that the nation is approaching full employment. The first thing to keep an eye on in the labor market would be job openings to decrease, followed by layoffs if the economy continues to slow into a recession, leading to a higher unemployment rate. Such projections would implicitly acknowledge rising recession risk. In the past, when the unemployment rate has increased by at least a half percentage point in the three months from its low over the previous year, a recession has coincided, followed by an even bigger jump in unemployment. Another reason why economists do not believe that we are in an official recession is the discrepancy between GDP and GDI estimates. Economic output can be measured in two different ways, gross domestic product or gross domestic income. For every dollar an individual spends to buy some goods or service, another individual earns a dollar of income to make and deliver that good or service. GDP captures the spending side of these transactions, GDI the income side. In theory, GDI and GDP should equal each other, though there is always some statistical discrepancies because they are measured using different data sets and different sources. The gap between GDP and GDI has gotten wider. According to research from Philippa Dunn and Doug Henwood of TLR Analytics, between 1950 and 2019, its average was 0.4%, meaning that GDP is normally 0.4% larger than the GDI. In the first quarter of this year, it was 2.4%. In the most recent release for the third quarter, the difference was 2.4%. Some economists look for a clearer picture by averaging GDP and GDI. 
for the third quarter, the average of GDP and GDI was 2% and averaged 0.3% through the first three quarters of this year. This is more consistent with stalling economy than one that is still growing. So the risk of a recession, not only in the U.S., but globally, is a reason for central banks around the world to slow the pace of tightening. Finally, central bank bankers must also manage the risk that inflation eventually falls just as rapidly as it has risen. Central banks tend to stop hiking when year-over-year -year inflation is close to its peak. Since 1972, peak CPI has led the last Fed hike by an average of five months. Peak CPI was June of 2022, which based on history means that the Fed should be near the end of their rate hiking cycle. The year-over-year -year percentage change in M2 money supply leads the year-over-year -year percentage change in CPI by 16 months and shows that inflation should continue to come down, liquidity decreasing leading to lower inflation. This shows that once inflation starts coming down, there is a possibility of it coming down quickly. Alfonso Pecatello looked at episodes of higher inflation, that is CPI greater than 3% entering a recession. The data looked at peak CPI ahead of the recession and low after recession, along with the number of months for CPI to slow to 2% or less. The average peak CPI ahead of a recession was 6.9%, with the average low after recession 0.1%. The average change in peak to trough CPI was a negative 5.8%. And finally, it took on average 16.2 months for CPI to slow to 2% or less. The risk of inflation moving down quickly is a reason to slow pace of rate hikes. Even though the Fed has indicated that the terminal interest rate for this cycle is higher than their expectations in September, the positive news is that we are probably at peak hawkishness of the Fed with their plans to slow the pace of rate hikes, which began with the December meeting rate hike of a half percent, which eventually could lead to a pause for them to view how the rate hikes work their way through the economy, and finally to a potential pivot to rate cuts to support the economy if it falls into a recession. So what do these projections say about what the Fed is currently thinking? In terms of economic growth, the Fed sees economic growth below trend that we saw after the great financial crisis of around 2% for 2022, 2023, 2024, and 2025, with it returning to long-run estimates of 1.8% in 2025. The 0.5% growth for this year in 2023 tells me that the Fed is expecting a recession without putting it in their projections. The first two quarters of this year show negative GDP prints and a technical recession. The question will be, is the growth in the third quarter GDP and estimated currently for fourth quarter GDP by the Atlanta Fed GDP now an indication of the end of the technical recession in the first two quarters to one of slower economic growth and a potential for a soft landing, or is there a deeper recession still to come? Their forecast for unemployment is to increase through 23, 24, and 25 above their full employment estimate of 4% over the longer run, which is around the Federal Reserve estimate of the natural rate of unemployment, which is around 4.25%. There has never been a 0.9% increase in the unemployment rate over a year's period without a recession taking place. The Fed increased their expectations for 2022, 23, and 24 in their preferred inflation measure, the core PCE, to 4.8%, 3.5%, and 2.5%, respectively, while leaving their expectation for 2025 the same as their September projections of 2.1%. The Fed does see inflation as moving toward their average at 2% goal by the end of 2025, based on their current projections. Finally, the Fed has pushed up their median expectation for the Fed funds rate in 23, 24, and 25. Their expectations for the Fed funds rate to be 5.1% in 2023, 4.1% in 2024, and 3.1% in 2025. 
Based on their median projections, they are pricing an additional half to three quarters percent an additional increase in Fed funds rate next year before cutting rates in 2024. This would mean that the Fed would be looking to continue to raise interest rates to a level above the neutral rate and leave them above the neutral rate all the way through 2025. This, along with the additional tightening caused by the completion of their tapering of asset purchases earlier in the year and rolling off their balance sheet, would slow growth and help to slow the demand side of inflation. The Fed is trying to right the wrong of not stopping asset purchases and tighten monetary policy earlier with another wrong of having to tighten policy well above restricted levels to help lower the demand side of the equation as it comes to higher inflation, which will lead to a slower economic growth, a greater possibility of a recession if we are not in one already, and more importantly, breaking something that leads to financial instability. Because we know that when the Fed tightens policy, things normally break, which causes them to reverse course. Two wrongs don't make a right. The problem is that we will not know that they have over-tightened until after the fact because monetary policy acts with a lag. So what could this mean for markets going into 2023? Much will depend on the pace of inflation and when will the Fed pause and possibly cut rates, as well as the reasons for cutting rates. By the middle of next year, if inflation stays down, the Fed would surely accept that it no longer needs such high rates, a scenario good for both bonds as yields fall and stocks. This year's rapid tightening plunges the economy into a deeper recession, threatening too low inflation and forcing the Fed to cut. Bonds would win, but stocks would suffer. Based on the current maximum market drawdown for this bear market, the market is pricing a cyclical bear market without a recession, which has a mean of a negative 25.2% loss from 1900 to present using the Dow Jones Industrial Average, according to Ned Davis. This is lower than the mean return for all bear markets and those cyclical bear markets that occur with a recession of a negative 31 and a negative 34.6% return, respectively. So if an official recession were to occur, the market still has a price that in. When looking at the earnings yield, which is the inverse of the P-E ratio for the S&P 500 at bear market bottoms, the earnings yield for the S&P 500 at the recent lows shows that it priced in a cyclical bear market without a recession. According to Ned Davis research, the mean loss for a cyclical bear market without a recession is a negative 24.5% with a median earnings yield of 7.5%, which is near what the S&P 500 was at at the market bottom. However, it has not priced in a cyclical bear market occurring with a recession, which has a mean loss of a negative 34.3% with an earnings yield of 9.6%. If the economy does not enter a recession next year, the recent bottom could be the low and the S&P 500 could move higher in the third year of a presidential cycle, the pre-election year, which historically has been the best year of the four-year cycle. If the economy enters a recession, the S&P 500 could struggle in the first half of the year, but bottom in the middle of the year even before the recession is over due to the stock market being a forward-looking indicator. The average return since 1950 for the S&P 500 in the third year of a presidential cycle is 16.8%. It is up 80% of the time, according to LPL research. The returns have been even better in the third year of a presidential cycle than average when the midterm year was negative. The average return for the S&P 500 in those years for the third year of the presidential cycle was 24.6% going back to 1950, according to Carson Investment Research. With a large percentage of yield curves inverted and a massive amount of tightening that has been done that works with a lag in the economy, investors must be on guard for a risk of a deeper recession than the technical recession that we saw in the first two quarters of 2022 because this would prolong 2022's weakness in risk assets since the stock market has never bottomed before the start of a recession with the bear market on average ending nine months after the recession started according to Carson Investment Research. 
Conversely, a soft landing would mean an earlier equity rebound since the 2022 bear market is close to the average non-recession bear in time and price. Interesting fact is that recessions don't normally occur in third years of presidential cycles. According to research from Carson Investment Research, no recession has started in a pre-election year going back to World War II. So could this time be different with many indicators indicating a recession in the next year? Another issue that could complicate returns in 2023 is how far do earnings estimate revisions need to come down based on a slower economy and higher input costs for companies. According to Ned Davis research since 1984, consensus estimates have proven to be 8% too high compared to what was actually reported one year later on average. According to Ned Davis research, the consensus estimate are calling for S&P 500 operating earnings to rise 13.64% next year. If earnings growth were to come in with an average 8% and downward revisions, the market should be able to deal with the average decline. This would mean earnings growth of about 5%. However, if the revisions to earnings growth is much deeper due to a recession, the market would probably not handle the above average decline in earnings growth. According to Ned Davis Research, S&P 500 earnings declined at a 24.4% annual rate during recessions on average. This would lead to potentially higher valuations for the market than it currently tells us. One potential tailwind for earnings could be the weaker dollar. The U.S. dollar index is down about 7% since beginning of the fourth quarter. A rough rule of thumb is that every 1% change in the value of the U.S. dollar leads to an inverse impact of 0.5% of S&P 500 earnings per share. This would mean an approximate 3.5% increase in S&P 500 earnings. This would, benefit, this would be a benefit for multinational companies to get a larger percentage of revenues and earnings from abroad. Whether the economy is in a recession or not will be important to when S&P 500 earnings growth bottoms. Earning growth in non-recessionary environments tend to bottom earlier than ones in recessionary bear markets, which normally bottom a few quarters after the end of a recession on average. The important thing is that although the S&P 500 earning growth tends to bottom after the end of recessions, the S&P 500 tends to bottom about halfway through a recession on average since World War II as the stock market looks forward to earnings bottoming and then growing again. Another current tailwind for the markets going into the new year is the fact that investor sentiment is negative, which tends to be a contrarian bullish indicator for markets. According to Ned Davis research, when the AAII bulls divided by bulls to bears is below 59.5%, the average annual gain for the S&P 500 was 9.76% since August of 1987. The current reading for that data point is at 31.9% as of December 23rd. And it's not just recent bearish investor sentiment, but weak sentiment readings the whole year. According to Bespoke Investment Group, so far this year there has not been one week where the AAI survey had above average bullish sentiment. This would be the first year in history of the survey where this has happened. The NDR crowd sentiment poll is also showing negative investor sentiment with a reading below 57, which has led to an average annual gain for the S&P 500 of 9.38% since December of 95. The current reading for that sentiment indicator is 49.4. Finally, the Ned Davis daily trading sentiment composite is also showing short-term investor sentiment is bearish with a reading below 41.5, with the average annual return for the S&P 500 being 26.31% since December of 94. Current reading for this sentiment indicator is 32.22. Looking at recent valuations for the domestic stock market, mid-cap and small caps are trading at lower valuations than the S&P 500 and both are trading under their 20-year average forward P.E. ratio. While international emerging markets are trading at lower valuations than the S&P 500 with the 
Europe, Asia, Far East, Eurozone, and Japan trading at lower forward P ratios than the average going back to 2003. International and emerging markets could benefit from the Fed's rate hiking cycle slowing down and eventually pausing and possibly pivoting to rate cuts. This could lead to potential of a lower dollar and lower interest rates which would benefit international investors. In terms of fixed income, starting yields are higher and most central banks tend to be close to the end of their tightening cycle rather than the beginning, which could lead to pause and possible pivots to rate cuts if the global economy contracts. With higher yields, investors can invest in core-grade investment bonds such as treasury, investment-grade corporates, and municipals without having to invest in more aggressive areas of fixed income such as high-yield debt with the possibility of a deeper economic contraction coming in 2023. Core bonds tend to do well during pauses in Fed's rate hiking cycles. According to LPL research, the average return of the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index a year after the Fed pause during hiking cycles was 13% since 1984. While the average return a year out from the final Fed rate hike for the U.S. 10-year Treasury was 10%. Bonds would benefit from the potential for rate cuts and lower yields due to an economic contraction. According to the macro ALF, over the last 30 years, the Fed has cut the Fed funds rate by 3% in the first 12 months after the start of a recession. And according to Bloomberg's, based on past recessions since 1980, the current 10-year, 2-year yield curve inversion would apply almost 5% of rate cuts by the Fed in a recession. Finally, the copper-gold ratio implies the 10-year Treasury yield should be closer to 2% versus the current 3.75%. So in terms of investing based on this data, much will depend on the pace of inflation and when will the Fed pause and possibly cut rates, and as well as the reason for cutting rates. By the middle of next year, if inflation stays down, the Fed would surely accept that it is no longer needs such high rates, a scenario good for both bonds as yields fall on stocks. If this year's rapid tightening plunges the economy into a deeper recession, threatening too low inflation and forcing the Fed to cut, bonds would win but stocks would suffer. Based on the current maximum market drawdown for this bear market and the earnings yield for the S&P 500 at bear market bottoms, the S&P 500 has priced in a cyclical bear market without a recession, however has not priced in a bear market with a deeper recession. If the economy does not enter recession next year, the recent bottom could be the low and the S&P could move higher in the third year of the presidential cycle, the pre-election year, which historically is the best year of the four-year cycle. If the economy enters a recession, the S&P 500 could struggle in the first half of the year, but bottom in the middle of the year even before the recession is over due to the stock market being a forward-looking indicator. The average return since 1950 for the S&P 500 in the third year of the presidential cycle is 16.8% and is up 89% of the time, according to LPL research, while the returns have been even better in the third year of the presidential cycle than average when the midterm year was negative, with the average return for the S&P 500 in those years being 24.6% going back to 1950, according to Carson Investment Research. With a large percentage of yield curves inverted and the massive amount of tightening that has been done that works with a lag in the economy, investors must be on guard for the risk of a deeper recession than a technical recession that we saw in the first two quarters of 2022 because this would prolong 2022 weakness in risk assets since the stock market has never bottomed before the start of a recession, with the bear market on average ending nine months after a recession start, according to Carson's investment research. Conversely, a soft landing would mean an earlier equity rebound since 2022 bear market is close to the average non-recession bear in time and price. The interesting fact is that recessions don't normally occur in third years of presidential cycles, according to research from Carson Investment Research, with no recession starting in pre-election years going back to World War II. 
Another issue that could complicate returns in 2023 is how far do earnings estimate revisions need to come down based on a slower economy and higher input costs for companies. According to Ned Davis' research, since 1984, consensus estimates have proven to be 8% too high compared to what was actually reported one year later on average. If the earnings revisions to earning growth are much deeper due to a recession, the market would probably not handle the above-average decline in earnings growth. According to Ned Davis, S&P 500 earnings declined at a 24.4% annual rate during recessions on average. Whether the economy is in a recession or not will be important for investors when S&P 500's earnings growth will bottom. Earnings growth in a non-recessionary environment tend to bottom earlier than one in a recessionary bear market, which normally bottoms a few quarters after the end of recession on average, while the S&P 500 tends to bottom about halfway through a recession on average since World War II as the stock market looks forward to earnings bottoming and then growing again. Investor sentiment is currently extremely bearish, which is a contrarian bullish indicator for the stock market, while valuations, especially for U.S. small and mid-cap stocks, as well as international emerging markets, are below long-term averages. In terms of fixed income, starting yields are higher, and most central banks tend to be closer to the end of their tightening cycle than the beginning, which could lead to a pause in possible pivot to rate cuts if the global economy contracts. With higher yields, investors can invest in core investment-grade bonds such as treasuries, investment-grade corporates, municipals without having to invest in more aggressive areas of fixed income such as high-yield debt with the possibility of deeper economic contraction coming in 2023. Core bonds tend to do well during pauses in the Fed rate hiking cycles. According to LPL research, the average return of the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index a year after the Fed pause during hiking cycles was 13% since 1984. A pause could be here sooner than investors think, with peak CPI leading the last Fed hike by an average of five months since 1972. Peak CPI currently for the cycle was June of 2022. The peak and rollover of the two-year Treasury tends to lead the end of rate hiking cycles by two to two and a half months, with the current peak in the two-year occurring in November 4th. Remember, based on Fed's current projections, they see a terminal rate of 5.1% if they can get there, and that is only 60 basis points from the upper end of the current Fed funds target range. Bonds would benefit from the potential for rate cuts and lower yields due to a deeper economic contraction. Over the last 30 years, the Fed has cut the Fed funds rate by 3% in the first 12 months after the start of a recession, and based on past recessions since 1980, the current 10-year to 2-year yield curve inversion would imply almost 5% of cuts by the Fed in a recession, according to Bloomberg. This while the copper-gold ratio implies that the 10-year Treasury yield should be closer to 2% rather than the current 3.75%. So in conclusion, the Fed projections show the Fed continuing to tighten monetary policy even though real-time inflation data shows inflation declining due to their concerns of a stickier core service inflation at shelter being caused by what they see as tighter labor markets leading to higher wage growth. The risk of over-tightening due to the lag in monetary policy filtering into the economy leads to a higher risk of a deeper recession. The percentage of yield curves that are inverted and the leading economic indicators going below zero year over year and just the general track record of the Fed tightening into recession are indicators of this risk. The current market low is pricing a bear market without a recession, while a deeper recession would call for a potential lower low based on the average drawdown for bear markets with recessions. The risk of recession could lead to earnings growth estimates to be revised much lower, which would be the cause for the lower drawdown. Either way, the stock market will bottom and start to move higher before earnings bottom as the stock market is a forward-looking indicator, seeing that the bottom is nearing for earnings and then beginning to move higher. 
Investor sentiment and seasonality of the third year of the presidential cycle are currently positive for markets, while valuations, especially for small and mid-cap domestic stocks, as well as international emerging markets, are reasonable and below long-term averages. Core bonds with higher starting yields and the history of them performing well after Fed rate hike pauses, as well as rates normally dropping further in a recession, could work as a head for risk assets. With the risk of something breaking due to over-tightening, volatility will continue to probably be elevated until central banks start to slow and pause their tightening policy, which means having some assets and shorter-term cash alternatives can help the allocation now that they're actually yielding something while the volatility persists. This completes this episode of the Educating Investors Podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share it with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do as well as to find my contact information and links to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors Podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors Podcast, its host Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC, should not be held liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based on information or viewpoints that are presented on the Educating Investors Podcast.